Today, our scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. It can be found on pages 984 in your Black Pew Bible. Colossians 2, starting in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The last four weeks, we have been in the Psalms, and before that, we've been spending week after week after week in the book of Colossians. And so I'm just going to jump right back into Colossians and get started. So um, yeah, if you, if you were here last week and were wondering how we just scratch records and start uh, in new places in the Bible, that's what's happening. So let me start by making this claim. I'll, I'll start by making kind of a extreme or direct claim. And I want to say that high and lofty and sophisticated and complex theology is necessary for you to experience freedom from judgment. The supreme reality of who Christ is and what he's done and the downstream consequences of those objective truths, they are the only thing in the universe that can make you free from the judgment of other people. At the outset of our time this morning, I want to point out that the Christologically rich and vast and glorious sections of text that we spent time in Colossians already from places like Colossians chapter 1, the places that we have spent time already, those rich, deep, theologically um, textured realities are for you to be free, free. Christ's supremacy above everything, the, the understanding of that and the grasping of it, the apprehension of that isn't for the elite. It isn't for just the super smart people or the really gifted or the super spiritual Christians to understand. It's for you. The colossal truths about Christ aren't for some ivory tower theologians. Those truths are for simple, plain people like you and me. It's for our hearts so that we can experience freedom from chains of fear and doubt and judgment so that you can be free from those things. We need the Holy Spirit to take the reality of Christ and then sink it down deeper into our hearts and souls. And that's why in places like Mark chapter 9, a father desperate to see his own son delivered from the oppression of a demon, cries out to Jesus and says, Lord, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. The Lord part of that statement has to sink down deeper. Help our unbelief. If I could see your preeminence more clearly, if I could understand your supremacy more deeply, if I could know your sufficiency more fully, I'd be free from the captivating nature of lies. I'd be free from deceitful philosophy that we read about earlier in Colossians. I'd be free from the fear of man, free from the judgment of my friends or maybe my family. Paul's already said, see to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that no one takes you captive, that you're not a slave or a hostage or a POW or a detainee. You're not confined or caged. See to it that nobody traps you. Believing lies is a trap. 
Being controlled by the judgment of other people is a trap. Believing lies ensnares you and confines you and suffocates you and it will kill you. Unbelief will kill you. Your fight to be free, your fight to breathe, your fight to live is a fight to see to it that the rich and deep theology of the gospel invades the unbelief in your heart the same way that light invades darkness. Light comes in and darkness scatters, scatters. So what we need today is more light more light. Come Holy Spirit, illuminate your words to us and scatter, scatter the darkness of unbelief in our hearts. Knowing who Christ is and what he's done is the grounding of our ability to listen and apply instruction from the apostle this morning. Knowing who Christ is and what Christ has done is the foundation that we build a life that's free from judgment, free from the judgment of others and a life that's free from judging other people as well. Let no one judge you and don't go around judging other people. And Christ makes both of those realities available to us. Would you all bow your heads with me and, and pray? Heavenly Father, we've committed this time to you already this morning. Um, but we long, we have a burden that you would be pleased. That you would be pleased with the worship, that you would be pleased with the posture of our hearts this morning. We have a longing that you would help us, help us sit in humility underneath your word. Help us be aware of things in our hearts that we didn't know were there before. Help us see sin in our lives, see entanglements, see obstacles and hurdles, see places that you want to mature us in Christ. Spirit of God, would you convict us? Would you transform us? Would you move us further along in maturity, in completeness? This morning I ask in the name of Jesus, amen. Hey, with our text today, I just have uh, three main points. The first point is that in Christ, you're freed from shadows. The second point is in Christ, you're freed from judgment. And the third point is in Christ, you have the substance. First point, in Christ, you're freed from shadows. To explain that, I want to cheat and answer three more questions. The first one is, What's the author alluding to? What are you talking about, Paul? That's number one. Number two is, in what way should these shadows be important to us, to us now, if at all? Like, in what way should we relate to them? If they're not the substance, how should we relate to them? And then number three, how should we relate to shadows as freed people? Look again at verse 16 with me. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. What's Paul getting at? As I spent time prepping, as I, as I spent time prepping for this sermon, it was clear that different scholars are more or less convinced of a couple different options here. 
And the reason for different opinions and different emphases is that Paul doesn't explicitly name the controversy. He doesn't explicitly outline exactly what the false teaching is. We get descriptions of what's going on and we get instructions of how to handle something like this, but it isn't overly obvious whether or not all the false teaching was coming from Jewish Christians who are trying to enforce Jewish traditions onto Gentile believers, the scholars go further to point out that in other places in the New Testament, when Jews are attempting to, when the Jews are attempting to require Jewish traditions for Christians, for new believers, in other places in the New Testament, when then that is explicitly the fallacy, the false teaching that's going on, Paul is more explicit in places like Galatians 2. So scholars disagree on whether this is entirely from Jewish law and Israel's history or if the list and the list that continues into next week, if that list is a mixture of pagan and Jewish traditions. This syncretistic view of Colossians, of the Colossian false teaching is a fairly common view among scholars and I think it's valid, but either way, Either way, if you think it's all just about the Jewish laws and the Jewish traditions, or you think it is a syncretist, syncretistic kind of mixture of both, either way, you have to see that Paul shifts. Paul shifts to a uniquely Jewish category when he uses the paradigm of shadows pointing to the substance. That's important in our day because we're tempted to take things in our lives that make us feel good or make us feel better and kind of cram them into the Bible like they were always there. But we should be really cautious when we do those kinds of things. The shadow and Christ connection here is a line straight from the people of God in the Old Testament covenants and history to Christ and the work of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. That's what draws my focus this morning. And if that's what draws our focus, then what is, what exactly is the shadow? What's Paul getting at? And N.T. Wright summarizes this answer for us when he says, the phrase, the phrase by what you eat or drink refers to the kosher laws of the Old Testament, extended as they were in Paul's time to include wine as well as food, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, a celebration, or a Sabbath day is a fairly typical list of Jewish holy days. These rules of diet and ritual marked out the Jew from his pagan neighbor. Failure to observe them implied that one did not belong to God's people, end quote. Paul's referring to kosher laws and holy days from Israel's history. And he's explaining that the saints of God cannot be judged by their adherence to these extraneous laws from the history of Israel anymore, anymore. And if that's the case, how should we relate to them? If that's the case, we're not, we're not required to follow these dietary restrictions anymore. Then when we see those in the Old Testament, how should we interact with them? How should we relate to them? I think that they are immensely important. And I would submit to you that when we come across them in our reading of the Old Testament, that we should look for something. We should be on the hunt for the substance right? We should look for the line from the shadow to Christ. For instance, Christ himself comes on the scene and in a culture that obeys 
kosher food laws for the sake of holiness and the sake of spiritual cleanliness, Jesus himself shows up and says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of our hearts, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and adultery. The shadow was staying holy and spiritually clean through observance of obedience to God's dietary laws. But now the substance of those realities is Christ. And in Titus 2, it says that we wait for our blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of our, God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify, purify for himself a people to make his own possession, zealous for good works. When you read about holiness in the Old Testament, when you read about purity in the Old Testament, when you read about heart cleanliness in the Old Testament, let it send you to the bloody cross of Christ. The shadow was extraneous laws, but the substance is Christ, and he has redeemed you. He's purified you so that he can have you as his own, part of his bride. That's the substance of purification laws and kosher diets. Let it cut you to the heart with gratitude and thanksgiving. And not only that, but now live free from those shadows. It isn't what goes into a man that makes him unclean. You're freed from shadows. You're freed from rituals and superstitions and routines that you think will make God like you more or make God want to be around you more. You're freed from the schemes of man-made religion and traditions. You don't have to live under the slavery of self-righteousness or moralism. And that's really good news because God's not impressed and it's really a weight that's too heavy to carry. Our hearts or like a car out of alignment. It's always veering in one of two directions, always veering towards license or veering towards self-righteous legalism. The moral law in the Old Testament, the moral law in the Old Testament is not a shadow, okay? It is not outmoded by the advent of Christ. What comes out of a man's heart does reveal that sin and wickedness are inside the heart of man. You can't make sin sin a matter of Christian liberty. You can't make adultery or evil thoughts or theft or sexual immorality a matter of Christian conscience. The moral law is there to help you to expose your sin and your need for Christ. And if you find yourself calloused to that law, numb to what the Bible calls sin and condemns, then you're in a dangerous place. And God's grace is inviting you even this morning to come and welcome to Jesus Christ. He changes everything, everything. He's the substance. He can cleanse you from the inside out. If you're a Christian in this room, you're freed from shadows. You're f there's, no, there's no freedom in unconfessed sin. There's no freedom in hidden sin. There's no freedom 
in trying to justify your sin. The scriptures call that slavery as well. Second point, in Christ, you are freed from judgment. You're freed from judgment. And in order to get our arms around that truth, that fact, that monumental, life-changing understanding, I want us to think about it in two ways. One, you're free. You're free from the judgment of other people. And you are free from trying to get up over on other people and judge them. A friend of mine says that texts about judgment are hard for us to apply because we only see them as for other people and not ourselves. And in today's culture, it isn't difficult to imagine telling somebody that they shouldn't judge you or that they can't judge you. That is not unfamiliar to us. Someone asks us a question that rubs us the wrong way and we bristle and react with an attitude of, you can't judge me. But what we see here is a kind of judgment that the Bible does forbid on both sides of the equation. The Bible talks about judgment in lots of different places, in places like Matthew 7, in places like Romans 14, in places like James 4. Judgment is addressed extensively. And out of those texts, we can see that all Christians must make judgments. You have to make judgments. You have to evaluate. You have to analyze. You have to assess. All Christians must do this. You're instructed, actually, to have a clear conscience and be fully convinced in your own mind about the judgments that you make. It's actually prohibited to have a, a slippery conscience or, or to be squishy when it comes to subjects of Christian liberty. But the judgment here is a legalistic kind of judgment. It's a judgment that goes beyond the requirements of God. To be clear, to be clear, God does have requirements. And even those requirements you can never fully meet outside of Christ. But to go beyond the requirements of what has been communicated by God is legalism. To make, to make rules where God has not made rules is legalism. And John Piper sums up the dangers of legalism succinctly in this quote about alcoholism. Quote, God hates legalism as much as he hates alcoholism. When I go home at night and close my eyes and let eternity rise up in my mind, I see 10 million more people in hell because of legalism than because of alcoholism. And I think that is a literal understatement. Satan is so sly. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He keeps his deadliest diseases the most sanitary. Legalism is more dangerous of a disease than alcoholism because it doesn't look like one. Alcoholism makes men fail. Legalism helps them succeed in the world. Alcoholism makes men depend on the bottle. Legalism makes them self-sufficient depending on no one. Alcoholism destroys moral resolve and legalism gives it strength. Alcoholism, alcoholics don't feel welcome in church, maybe. And legalists love to hear their morality extolled in church. When we make rules 
outside of the scripture and beyond the scripture in order for us to obey them or, or in order for us to have something to look down on other people for not obeying, it's legalism and it's destructive. As our text instructs, don't let anybody judge you in what you eat or drink or what days you observe. Don't let that chain you up. Don't let them control you by legalistic expectations. The false teachers in Colossae, and perhaps, perhaps the Christians in your life, will forbid things that God doesn't and require things that God doesn't. So the first invitation today is don't let them judge you. And that, that might mean you get to have a conversation with someone, and it might not. If you're in Christ this morning, though, you are free from that judgment. Free from the judgment of others. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. See, if your conscience is clear, then the judgments of others are anemic. They fall flat. They can't hold you or control you. Don't allow the super spiritual requirements that others impose on you to control you. Don't let them hold sway in your hearts. The Colossian uh, false teaching is this idea that there's some additional reality that you need to enter the, the, the third heaven. There's some additional reality that you need to be super spiritual. You need to eat this or drink this or keep these rules if you really want to enter into what? Into the fullness of Christ. But you've already been given the fullness of Christ. The answer to judgment from others is not to condemn them. It's not to lash out at them. It's not to rebelliously bristle and kick off the judgment. Paul's exhortation is not about controlling other people or changing other people. It's about letting the gospel control your responses. Paul's exhortation is not about trying to control other people or changing other people. It's about letting the gospel control your responses. You'll never be able to stop another human being from judging you, ever. Literally, you have, you have zero power over that. But you do get to play a part in how it hits you. You do get to play a part in how your heart reacts as it hits you. That's why resisting the burden of someone else's judgment will always require humility and it will always require meekness in the Christian heart. If your response to judgment is arrogant or prideful or angry, then you're actually just trading one set of chains for another set. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, I don't know, I don't, I don't know of any legitimate beef against me but if you judge me, it's a little thing to me. He won't be motivated. He won't be mo uh, anxiously motivated by the judgments of other people. He won't be steered or mastered or dominated by somebody else's judgment of him. We see texts about judgment and we quickly think that it's for somebody else. And if we get anything today, let's get this, that when, when you're judged, the exhortation is, for you in your heart? What will you do in your heart in that moment? And when you judge others, the exhortation is also for you in your heart. 
When you judge others, it's about you. And when you're judged, it's about you. The freedom of the gospel can't be foisted onto other people, but we can embrace it for ourselves right now. And in Christ, you can be free from judgment. You can also be free from judging other people. One author puts it this way. When explaining the kind of definition of what sinful judgment is, he says, the sin of judging is negatively evaluating someone's conduct or spiritual state on the basis of non-biblical standards or suspected motives. When we're tempted, when we're tempted to guess somebody else's motives, the sin of judgment is creeping outside the door. The scriptures explain that you don't even know why you do what you do most of the time. You don't even know what's in your own heart. How on earth could you guess the motives of somebody else's? But the insidious nature of judgment is that it pays. It scratches and itch. It pays with self-righteous pride. It pays with bolstering our arrogance. It gives us the enjoyment of a stuck-up attitude, and that's sinful. It's sinful, and it feels good. It feels good for a little while until it eats your soul from the inside out. Prideful judgment of others is corrosive and destructive and addictive. We get used to our fix of feeling better than other people or looking down on other people. And we all do it. We all pray. We all pray like the Pharisee. God, thank you so much that I'm not like that guy. Or I'm not like her. Or I don't say things that she says. Or I I would never do that that way. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. But if if we draw any comfort or confidence from our ability to be disciplined or obedient or righteous, then we we need to listen to Paul's words from Philippians 3. Philippians 3, 2 through 11 says this. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, As to righteousness under the law, Paul says about himself, blameless, blameless. We judge other people when we're putting our confidence in our blamelessness or in our flesh. And God saves and rescues men just like Paul so that we would be ashamed in that moment of ourselves. Whatever we've done in our lives, whatever Whatever you've done that was good, it isn't the pedigree that Paul had. It isn't the righteousness under the law that Paul describes here. That's why this kind of thing is in the Bible, so that you would look at whatever good deeds you do that you stack up on top of each other so that you can look down on other people and that reality would be ripped out from underneath us. That's why it's here. And verses like these are meant to kick us back into the place that we belong. 
Whatever reason you have to boast, Paul had more. Paul had more. Whatever good deeds you've done to make you feel justified in judging other people, Paul had more and a better list. And you don't have to be a slave to that impulse to judge others. In Christ, you can be freed from that kind of judgment as well. Third, third, last, final point. In Christ, in Christ, you have, you have the substance instead of the shadow. That's why Paul can speak the way that he does. Not that we have attained all that we can attain, but we fight in this church to attain more understanding, more love, more awareness and experience of our union with Christ. The fight here is a fight to lay hold of Christ who's already laid hold of us. It's the fight for the substance of Christ to sink down deeper and orient us more completely, to see us mature. In, in the wilderness, in the Old Testament, there was manna from heaven, but we have the bread of life. In the wilderness was the rock that shot forth water for the people, but we have living water in our souls by the power of the Holy Spirit. In ancient Israel, they had circumcision, but we've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In the Old Testament, they had the temple where God's presence was, but now we're the temple of God and his presence is here. In Israel, they celebrated the Passover lamb, but now we've seen the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and takes away your sin. In the Old Testament, God made provisions for the widows. He made provisions for the orphans, but now he's our father. In the ceremonial laws, the people were purified, but now we're the purified bride of Christ. In the Old Testament, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but now he speaks by his son. The Old Testament required the blood of bulls and goats, but that could never take away sin. And now we have the blood of Jesus Christ that washes us clean, completely clean, all the way clean, pure as snow. You don't have to live under a weight of judgment because whatever people could say about you, and they're probably right, at least part of the way, and more. It's worse than that. They don't even know places in your heart that you're unaware of that are darker than that. But Jesus does. And he goes all the way there and he cleans it. He purifies it. He goes even there. And God acquits you. You don't have to be defensive. You don't have to be angry. You get to agree with God, own your sin, and receive a righteousness that comes from God himself. I promise I promise it's better than whatever kind of measly righteousness you can come up with your, yourself. The ceremonies of the Old Testament were a shadow of what was to come, and we are not waiting anymore. The source casting the shadow is a person. It's Jesus. How silly, how silly would it be if I came home from work and my daughters ran out to greet me and flung themselves down on my shadow and hugged it, and talked to it, and kissed it. 
Ridiculous. That's what's happening when we're comforted by legalistic rules, legalistic self-righteous behavior. How ridiculous would it be if my kids started telling me, you know, I've missed you, Daddy. Let me tell you about my day. Come play with us. They start talking to my shadow like that. It is utter nonsense. And that's what's happening when we succumb to the judgments of other people. And when we judge others based on our own rules, things that God did not require. And get this, you don't have to judge other people and you don't have to live under the judgment from other people, not because of how great you are, but because you've already been judged. You've already been judged in the courtroom of God and you're guilty. And that's what Christ came to change for you. We don't have to waste a second. You don't have to waste a second of your life competing with other people to get God to love you or get God's approval of you. We've been judged and Christ stood in our place. He stood in our place. Your righteousness is real, but it comes through faith in the Son of God, not through food, not through drink, and not because you keep certain holy days or rituals or festivals. That's why you can stop avoiding confessing your sin. Nothing can clean you but the blood of Jesus. You don't have to hide your pride anymore. You don't even have to hide it from yourself. You can confess it and be set free. If you're in this room this morning and you know the Holy Spirit has spoken to you this morning and you know that you judge other people. You don't have to keep that weight in your chest. Dump it out at the foot of the cross. If you're here this morning and you're hiding your sin, you don't have to leave today with that sick feeling in your stomach. You can come clean with God. If you're lying to somebody who loves you, admit it and repent if you're harboring bitterness or resentment as someone who's hurt you, confess it and be free. If you're harboring bitterness and resentment, maybe someone has hurt you, you can forgive them and not judge them. You can stop holding on to it. And no matter what boat you're in this morning, my appeal to you is to come, everyone, welcome to Jesus Christ. Confess your sin, be reconciled to God, and be reconciled to one another, and come to the table. For everyone in this room who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, we invite you this morning to participate in communion. If you don't put your faith in Jesus, man, we're really stoked. I'm happy and glad for the opportunity to welcome you and have you in this place. I hope this is the kind of place where you can wrestle with tough questions. I hope people around you were welcoming and hospitable. But please don't take this meal. The scriptures are clear that this is something we do. We eat and drink in remembrance of him. So if you don't have that faith to remember him and proclaim him the way it speaks about in 1 Corinthians 11, then please don't take this meal. Maybe sit in your seat and pray for the first time or maybe grab someone next to you or maybe pray with one of our prayer ministers who will be over here to my left underneath the stained glass window after the service who would love to pray for anybody about anything, anytime. For the rest of you, for, for those of you who would put your faith in Jesus, I invite you, I invite you to t come, come forward and take communion. And the way we do that here is that we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. There are two stations down here in front of the podium, one in the balcony and a gluten-free and single serve station over to my left. And before you come up, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read from 1 Corinthians 11. 
This is what the Lord's Supper is for us. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And that's what we do every single week. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, the substance that's offered to us. We proclaim it every single week to each other when we look in each other's eyes and to the watching world as we show up here on Sundays. So I'm, I'm gonna pray for us and the servers are gonna come forward and the musicians are gonna come back up, back up. Would you bow your heads with me and pray with me? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would convict us of sin. I ask that you would set us free. I ask that you would expose judgment in our hearts, expose places that we're imposing legalism on other people, and expose places that we use legalism as an excuse to disobey you. Expose Expose places that we're living under the burden of other people's expectations and help, help us, set us, set us free. Jesus, would you take more ground in our hearts and minds? Would you be the Lord of our hearts? Would we orient all of our um, affections, all of our decisions around you and not pressure from the outside? As we come forward to eat your body and drink your blood, would you uh, strengthen our faith by the power of the Holy Spirit? Would you make us sturdy and compassionate, reflective, forgiving, and people who have experienced forgiveness? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Whenever, whenever you're ready, come forward and eat in faith.